all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. Today, we're going to continue our discussions on summer safety. We're going to talk this time about common illnesses that we see in the summertime. So this includes some mosquito and tick-borne illnesses, as well as viral illnesses, spider bites, snake bites, and anything else y'all want to talk about today. We'd love to hear from you, so give us a call to share your comments and questions with us this morning, one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Or send us an email at kids at org. So I thought since last week we had such great discussions about um, summertime safety and what to pack in our first aid kits, I decided that we would kind of continue those discussions about summertime safety, but this time talk about some of the different illnesses that we see in the summertime. So we hear a lot about tick-borne illnesses like Rocky Mountain spotted fever and Lyme disease and all the infections that mosquitoes carry, like West Nile or some of the different viruses that can cause encephalitis. But what should we look for? Because they're not very common. We don't see it very often. And a lot of times we get bit by ticks or mosquitoes and we don't get any infections. But it is really important to be able to recognize what to do if you think you may be developing some of these illnesses. Since they're not that common... Um, I decided we could talk about it so that we would know what to recognize. Also going to talk a little bit about spider bites and snake bites and what to do if those happen. Uh, Because, again, something that doesn't happen very often. But here in Mississippi and in the southeast, we have lots of snakes and spiders that are around all the time during the summer. I've already seen, I think, a couple of snakes in my neighborhood this year already. So they are out and about, and so we need to know what to do in those kind of situations when that happens. We'd love to hear from you. Maybe you've had some experience with this, so give us a call and share some of your stories with us, one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So the best way to prevent these illnesses from happening, uh, West Nile, Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, is to wear bug spray. So the best way to prevent them is to prevent the bites from happening. Mosquitoes are everywhere here in the southeast. We see them a lot, mostly in the summertime. But here in the south, they're actually year-round. Even in the wintertime, we do have some you know, mosquitoes. We also have ticks. I remember a couple of Christmases ago, it was 70 degrees on Christmas, and I grew up in the country, and we were outside playing kickball in 70-degree weather, uh, the kickball went into the woods, had to come go get it, and there were ticks on us from climbing in the woods on Christmas Day. So here in the south, we have mosquitoes, ticks 
everything all year round. So it's important to prevent those bites from happening. So if you know you're going to be outside, which in the summertime we tend to be outside more, make sure to wear your insect repellent. That is the best way to prevent these illnesses. Mosquitoes love stagnant water, so you're going to see them a lot by rivers, ponds. If you're outside, you have bird baths. If you are at a picnic where there's food around, there's also going to be more insects around that. So these are just important times to know if you're going to be outside, make sure you wear your bug spray. Insect repellent is safe. We recommend to make sure that you get an insect repellent that contains DEET. That is going to be the best thing that protects you against mosquitoes and ticks. There's some other things out there that may be helpful for mosquitoes, but are not going to be as helpful for ticks. So that's like the essential oils and a few other chemicals that are available are really good against mosquitoes maybe, but aren't going to protect you against ticks. So the DEET is good for protecting against both of those. It's pretty safe. You can actually use that all the way down to two months old. So a lot of times I'll have parents ask me for their infants, when can we start using sunscreen? When can we start using bug spray? So it is okay to start using it at once your infant is two months old. And we definitely recommend doing that if you're going to be outside. What I usually tell people to do is, you know, spray a little bit of the insect repellent in your hand And then you can rub it down on the child, so that way you're not spraying it directly on the child. We also tell people to make sure you spray it in open areas so you don't have your kid breathing so much of it in. Uh, But, yeah, so we want to make sure everybody puts their bug spray on. You can put the bug spray on the face, too. I forgot to mention that. Again, even for adults, too, when you're putting your bug spray on, just spray a little bit in your hands, and then you can rub a little bit on your face. So that way you're not spraying it directly onto your face and inhaling all of that and maybe even swallowing it when you cough it. There are also some um, chemical repellents that you can use, like permethrin. We use that a lot to treat different things like lice and other insects, but you can actually treat your clothes with that, or you could just buy clothes that are treated with that. So if you know you're going to go on a camping trip, you can treat your uh, sleeping bags with it, your clothes, any of the gear that you're going to be wearing, your boots, whatever you want. Uh, you can, Or you could just buy it. There's lots of different uh, available out there where you can buy the clothing and the gear that are already treated with the permethrin. This just gives you an added layer to protect against those ticks and insects that you're going to be, be seeing. Most of the insect repellents are also safe for pregnant and breastfeeding women. I would just double check the label and make sure that it's EPA approved and safe. But majority out there are going to be safe for you to use in your kids in pregnant women and breastfeeding women. So everybody, again, needs to wear their insect repellent. A few other tips that we tell people is try not to wear too many scents. You know, so try not to use scented shampoo, uh, soaps, perfumes, hairsprays, things like that. That tends to attract insects more as well. Try to not wear too bright colors. Um, That tends to attract insects as well. This is more like stinking insects, so bees and different things like that. If they see the bright colors or their flowery prints. So just kind of bland colors if you're going to be outside and hiking or doing whatever you want to do. Um, as always, we're being outside, we recommend long sleeves, pants, because that is also going to protect your skin, gives you an extra covered layer, whether without the chemically treated. Um, but definitely always have the long sleeve and the pants on. This helps to prevent bites as well. They have all kinds of uh, 
like the wick material where it's the the sweat helps you where you don't sweat as much, even though you are wearing long sleeve and pants. So look into some of those, especially if you're going to go on like a camping or hiking trip out there. If you do have mosquito bites and if you do get bit by ticks, so ticks is pretty important to make sure that Every time you come in, if your kids are outside, especially if you live near wooded areas, that you're doing skin checks for your kids. So ticks hide. They don't always, aren't always in areas where you can see them. So you want to make sure that you're doing full body checks on your kids when they come inside. Some places they like to hide is under the arms. So in your axillary area or under your armpits. Uh, We also see them kind of at your waistline sometimes even in your belly button. So you always want to make sure you're looking in all the different little crevices in over around the body. Behind the ears, um, on the backs of your knees, those are also common places. And then don't forget to check the hair. Um, I can still remember a time when I was in residency and we had a little kid that came in for weakness because you hear it a lot in dogs. That's where I had always heard it growing up. Uh, the tick paralysis where a dog gets bitten by a tick and then they can't walk because they get so weak. What well, actually can happen to humans, too. And so we had a little girl that came in, and that's what it all seems like. But we could not find the tick anywhere. And we looked and we looked and we looked. And finally, after about her third or fourth day in the hospital, we saw the tick on her pillow. It had come off and it had been in her hair. Um, So always make sure you're looking everywhere. Check every little crevice, look through the hair um, so you can make sure that there are no ticks hiding there. It's important because you want to make sure that you get the tick off as soon as you can. Um, Some of the illnesses, they can transmit pretty quickly through the tick bite, but some of them take a few days to actually take effect, particularly Lyme disease takes a few days. So if you get the tick bite, if you get bit by a tick, even if it is the tick that can carry Lyme disease, if you take it off really fast, there's a lower risk that you actually are going to get the illness transmitted to you. So if you do find a tick, you want to try to use some tweezers to take it off. Uh, Because if you use the fingers, you can't always get as good of a grip to pull the tick off. But if you don't have tweezers, you can use your fingers. But ideally, you get some tweezers and then just pull straight up. You don't want to twist it. You don't want to squeeze it because that you may like actually burst the tick and that can contain the infectious agent. So you want to just make sure you pull straight up off the tick and then clean the area really well after you after you get the tick removed. You may notice where the tick was. There may be like a little red bump there. That's really common. That doesn't necessarily mean there is an infection there. A lot of times it's just a reaction to the tick's saliva, actually. Um, Our skin is pretty sensitive to that. So just because there's a little red bump there where a tick used to be, that doesn't necessarily mean infection. Um, A lot of times that's just a local skin reaction to the saliva of the tick. So just make sure you keep it clean. You could put a little antibiotic ointment in there like neosporin just to keep the area clean Um, and then just keep a close eye on your kid making sure there's nothing else that develops like a worsening rash or fever or anything like that so we're going to continue our discussions about tick-borne illnesses and mosquito-borne illnesses and what to do and how to recognize them we would love to hear from you, so give us a call to share your comments and questions with us this morning. One eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can send us an email to kids at mpbonline.org.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Southern Remedy Kids and Teens and MPB Think Radio. We're talking today about summertime safety and the different illnesses that we encounter in the summertime. This includes mosquito illnesses, tick-borne illnesses, other viral illnesses, anything that we want to talk about today. We'd love to hear from you, so give us a call, 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can send us an email to kids at mpbonline.org. So we've got a couple of callers, so we'll go first to Jerry in Tupelo. Thanks for calling. Hi, love your show. Very informative. Yeah, thanks. Um, I have one of those situations where you've heard so many ways to remove a tick so that you get the head. I've heard everything from put alcohol on it to uh, take a cigarette butt, touch its you know, body or a hot like needle so that it lets go. What, what, in your opinion, is the best and most productive way to remove a tick and also make sure that you get the head, that that doesn't break off? So, yeah, so I would suggest getting tweezers if you can. That just helps you get a better grip on it because if, you if you're using your fingers, that's going to be, that's when it's a little more tricky to pull it completely off. Like you were saying, it's important to make sure you get the whole body, including the head of the tick. So if you have tweezers available or something to help you get a better grip on it, that's the most important thing. Um, from what I've read, I don't think you really get much benefit from actually applying anything for the tick to the tick itself to help you get a better grip to pull it off. I think the best thing is just to make sure you have that traction on it and using something like a tweezer or some kind of device that will help you grip it best is the most important thing. And I have a funny story. We pulled a tick off of my five-year-old daughter, and uh, and first we had to get her to that point where we could actually pull it off. And once I did get it off with the tweezers, she looked at me with tears in her eyes and said, Daddy, that was very hard on me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right, it, thank it, you guys. Yeah, thank you for your call. We'll go next to Marsha. It looks like she's got some advice on removing ticks. Thanks for calling. Hey, thank you for uh, taking my call. I'm going to disagree with something. Um, I have used the alcohol method seven t- several times on my dog and myself, which you do is you dip a Q-tip in alcohol, and then you roll it on the tip, roll it around the tip or tick and roll it on the tick. You have to have a tissue. And the sucker will come right off. It's hmm. like maybe you made him drunk or something and he passed out. But it, it's worked for me. Hey, well. So, and, you know, and I've told other people about this, but they seem to have good luck with it, too. You have to be patient. Yeah, yeah. It takes a little bit for him to get drunk. But um, Well, I was going to say, how long after you uh, put the alcohol on does it take effect? It takes effect. Well, really, not that not the, it, it takes effect almost immediately. Yeah, like I say, you have to kind of rub it a little bit and get and get enough on there, but it works. Okay, well that's good to know. Yeah, it's worth okay. a shot. Yeah, I mean, obviously, and of course you 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 do keep a tweezer on hand, because, but it'll still even if he's still in there, he'll come up easier. Come up easier, yeah. Well, that's good yeah. to know. Well, thank you for that. All right, you're welcome. 
We're talking today about summertime safety and the different illnesses that we see in the summertime. We would love to hear from you, so give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So we're talking about removing ticks and how important it is to try to prevent the mosquito and tick bites. But if you do get a tick on you, to make sure you try to remove it as quickly as you can. So we do recommend trying to use tweezers so you can get a good grip. And it may be worth a shot to try the alcohol um, to see if if it would help you get rid of the tick a little bit sooner, too. One other thing that I want to make sure that we talk about when we're talking about ticks is, um, and our last caller mentioned that she uses this for her dogs too, but don't forget about your pets and ticks because they carry ticks too. So make sure that you are taking your dog to the vet and they are getting their flea and their tick treatment because we want to try to prevent that from happening and bringing those into your house and into your yard um, so that that way that we're also protecting you and your family and your children and everybody that could be affected by these ticks so don't forget about treating your pets for the ticks and you need to be doing regular tick checks on your pets too especially if you live near wooded areas so make sure you're checking on your pets too for ticks so we'll get into a little bit first about mosquito illnesses that we see most of these that the mosquitoes carry are going to be viral illnesses and so what that means is There's not too many medications we can do for these illnesses. So antibiotics aren't going to work for a lot of these illnesses that are carried by mosquitoes. So if you were to get some of these illnesses by the mosquitoes, most of the treatment is just going to be supportive. And a lot of these illnesses that you can get by mosquitoes, especially West Nile, most people are pretty asymptomatic with it. Or if you get it, it's just very mild symptoms. So I kind of wanted to make sure we talked about this because I feel like when people hear West Nile, we automatically go straight to the horrible you know, thinking terrible things about West Nile. But honestly, most of the cases are pretty asymptomatic or if not then very mild symptoms so mosquitoes the common ones that we think about west nile that's going to be the most common one that we see in the u.s there's also lacrosse virus and st louis encephalitis virus we see those in the u.s as well those probably aren't as common and as well known uh, because west nile especially a few years ago that seems to be Rampant. We were having so many cases of it. Um, but lacrosse virus and the St. Louis encephalitis virus are also seen in the U.S. Some of the other ones that we think about, so this is important for people that like to travel, those are going to be like dengue virus, Zika virus, chikungunya. We see those more in tropical areas. So if you have family members living in U.S. territories like Puerto Rico or the Virgin Islands, we can see some of those illnesses there. But if you're going on a tropical vacation or cruise down to the Caribbean, um, it's important to make sure you look. You can get on the CDC's website. They have a ton of information for travelers out there. So you can know if the places that you're going, if these viruses are common there. So the dengue and Zika and chikungunya are a little different than the West Nile. Um, Those tend to cause a little bit more different symptoms, and we'll talk about that, but we don't see those really in the U.S. Um, I was actually looking on the CDC's website just to see when the last Zika virus was in the U.S., and there has been nothing documented um, as of 2018. So no documented cases of Zika in the U.S. since 2018. 
And I, I couldn't find anything about dengue and uh, chikungunya being in the U.S. So West Nile is the one that we're going to see the most common. And uh, we actually have seen it. We have several cases in Mississippi every year and all throughout the southeast. So what does West Nile do? So it is a virus. Um, the mosquitoes get infected with the virus when they feed on infected birds. You don't necessarily get the virus if you handle birds that have been infected by it. It has to be transferred from the mosquito when the mosquito bites you and through the blood. So just from handling birds, you're not going to get it. The incubation period, so that is the time from when you are exposed to the virus to when you start having symptoms, is about two to six days. So it can vary. Um, So if you have a bad mosquito bite, then you start having these, I mean, or you may not even realize you have a mosquito bite because we get so immune to it because they happen so often. But if you start having weird symptoms, you can kind of think back to have I been outside within the past week or so, because that's about the time frame. So two to six days is about the time from when you get bit by the mosquito to when you're going to start having symptoms, if you're going to have symptoms. Like I said, not everybody has symptoms that gets bit by a mosquito that's carrying West Nile. In fact, the numbers I found were 70 to 80% of the cases do not actually have symptoms. Only about one in five people actually have symptoms, and they're usually mild. And so you may have a little fever. Um, I would say most people I've seen with West Nile I'm taking care of have had relatively high fevers, so probably at least 101, 102 fevers. Also going to have headaches, body aches, joint aches may have some GI upset, like vomiting, diarrhea, kind of like what you would think about with the flu that we get in the fall and the winter time. That's usually what people are going to have. Very rarely, it's only about 1% of cases that people that get diagnosed with West Nile actually develop the serious symptoms. And these are the ones that we all hear about and, of course, that we're all concerned and we don't want to develop. And so these are the neurologic symptoms. So encephalitis, meningitis. So that's going to be swelling around an inflammation around the brain and also around the spinal cord and the meningeal and the meninges, which is what surround the brain and the spinal cord to protect them. So these are the ones that we think about that have the neurologic complications. You can also get some kind of polio-like paralysis with it, too, as well. Um, So some of the symptoms that you would see with encephalitis and meningitis are going to be fever again. These are usually probably going to be higher fevers. So this is like at least 103, sometimes 104, super high fever. Um, Also going to have headaches. That's one of the hallmarks of meningitis. Uh, Neck stiffness. So not just like, oh, my neck's a little sore. Like you have a really hard time. One of the things that we check for people when we're concerned about meningitis is we'll ask them to touch their chin to their chest. And you can't really move your chin to your chest because your neck is, is so tight and painful. Um, may get a little shaky and have tremors, may even actually have convulsions like seizures. So when you have that swelling and inflammation around the brain, you can have seizures. And some people do develop a coma where they actually become unconscious. So these are things to be looking out for. Who gets these severe symptoms? Usually it's our older patients, so people over 60, or people that have chronic medical problems that are going to be at higher risk for developing serious complications from illnesses, kind of like the flu, what we think about um, our elderly patients or our young, young infants, and as well as people that have um, diabetes or HIV or have been treated for, you know, 
chemotherapy and immunosuppression therapy, things like that. So it is serious if you do get the, the nervous system complications from it because about 1 in 10 people who do develop this can pass away. So it's something to recognize as soon as we can so that you can make sure that you get treated. There's not too much treatment we can do, like I said. It's just kind of supportive care because, unfortunately, we don't have any antiviral medications as of yet. Um, there's always research going on trying to find some treatment for that. But as of now, there's no real medications we can do. We just try to prevent and treat complications that happen with it. When it comes to like those more tropical viral illnesses that we see that are mosquito-borne, so dengue, Zika, chikungunya, those are going to cause the same thing, fever, headaches, muscles, joint aches. But usually with these cases, the joint aches are what are so bad. Um, I have a friend that actually got chikungunya in, uh, while she was in Central America, and she still to this day has some some problems with her back and joints because it is just it can be really painful joint aches. So that kind of separates that from the the typical ones that we see here in the U.S. Um, chikungunya and dengue really tend they actually call dengue uh, the broke back fever because it your joint aches and your back hurts so bad with these illnesses. So, again, we don't really see these in the U.S., but it's something to think about if you're traveling. So if you're going to be traveling to an area that these are endemic, make sure you take your insect repellent, as we've talked about, long sleeves if you can. Um, And it's important, too, depending on where you're staying, if it's a little, if it's not a place that is air conditioned or if it's open air, you may want to take a mosquito net. Um, I've had to use one of these before, and they're not the best because they do prevent some of the air circulation but it's more important you can put a little fan in there with you in your little bunk area but a mosquito net is very important if you're going to be going to some of these places where these are where these are common we've got a call so we'll go next to susan thanks for calling oh good morning good morning yeah i just just wanted to pass on something that i i learned years and years ago uh, which is um um Garlic is toxic to mosquitoes, and you find some um, mosquito uh, repellent sprays use garlic. Mm -hmm. Well, I solved the problem uh, partially by just taking odorless garlic pills. uh, Once I start taking them, I rarely get bitten by mosquitoes. I still use other repellents for ticks, Mm -hmm. but um, basically I guess the mosquitoes can smell the garlic on my skin even though my husband can't. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it's enough, you know, it's enough to shoo them off. I don't have problems with mosquitoes with odorless garlic pills. Oh, well, that's good to know. And garlic works well for a, a lot of different things, too. We use garlic for a lot of inflammatory issues, and a lot of people like it for high blood pressure and all all different chronic illnesses, too. So that's good to know. Yeah, I, I use it for inflammation, but mm-hmm. I found out a side benefit is it's a, mosqui- it's a mosquito. mosquito. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. Okay, thank you. We're talking today about summer summertime safety and the different illnesses that you may encounter in the summertime, whether that be mosquito illnesses, tick-borne illnesses, or different viral infections that you can see. We would love to hear from you, so give us a call to share your comments and questions with us at one eight seven seven MPB Ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or you can send us an email to kids at mpbonline.org. We'll take a quick break and continue our discussions.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We're talking today about summertime safety with the different illnesses you may encounter in the summertime. Uh, we talked a little bit about mosquito-borne illnesses, and now we're going to get into tick-borne illnesses that you can see. We would love to hear from you, so give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 So we talked a lot about mosquitoes and how to prevent mosquitoes and the different illnesses that you may uh, see with mos- when you get mosquito bites. Um, one thing our caller mentioned, you know, the garlic, which is very helpful. And there are a lot of natural remedies that you can do. Um, even essential oils can be helpful for preventing mosquitoes. But like she said, she uses something else to prevent ticks, too. So if you know you're going to be um, camping and going out on heights and wooded areas, it's great to use the natural remedies for the mosquitoes. But don't forget about the ticks, too. And so what do you do if you've been bitten by a tick? You know, we talked earlier about the importance of doing tick checks and different ways to remove the ticks if you do find a tick. So what are you looking for if, say, you do a tick check and you find a tick on your child? So we don't have Lyme disease in this area. That's one thing I wanted to mention because I feel like Lyme disease is one that everybody is, we hear about a lot, Lyme disease, but we don't have, it is not endemic to the southeast. Usually, most of the places we're going to see Lyme disease is going to be like in New England and the Northeast area, um, some of the mid-Atlantic states, so like Virginia's and the Carolinas, that area, and then the upper Midwest. So that's going to be more like Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, that area as well. But actually, here in the Southeast, we don't have Lyme disease. If you're traveling to those areas that are endemic, uh, you know you have to make sure that you're protecting for the Lyme disease, but. Here in the southeast, if you're going to be camping, you're going on hikes, that's one thing as of now, not to say that this won't won't be here in the future, but as of now, we don't have Lyme disease here in the southeast. It is caused by a, a bacteria called Borrelia burgdorferi, and it is carried by a certain type of tick that we see in those areas. So Lyme disease is pretty easy to recognize if you see it because they've got a pretty typical rash that you get. The rash can occur really any time between 3 to 30 days after the tick bite, but usually the average is going to be about a week after you get bit by the tick that you're going to see the rash come. And so the rash in Lyme disease is so specific that it actually has a, a name that we use for it. It's called erythema migraines. And so if you see this rash, then you know and you've been exposed to a tick, you know that this is what it is. But the rash, the erythema migraines rash, it looks like a bullseye or a target, So, you, and it can occur anywhere around the body. Um, usually it can be just one little area, but it can expand over time, so you may see more than one of these. But like I said, it's pretty specific to Lyme disease. If you see this after you've been exposed to a tick and you're in that area where we know it's endemic, you need to go get checked out. Um, some of the symptoms that you also see, fevers, chills, kind of all the stuff that we typically see with little viral illnesses, although this is a bacteria. Um, fevers, chills, headaches, muscle aches, joint aches, uh, feeling tired, can have some swollen lymph nodes, but the biggest thing to look for is going to be the rash. 
We're talking today about common illnesses that we see in the summertime. Right now, we're talking about tick-borne illnesses, but we would love to hear from you. Give us a call, one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We'll go to our caller, Lee. Thanks for calling today. Good morning. Good morning. What about common colds during the summertime for children and also what about diarrhea? And I'm going to hang up and let you talk about that. Okay, yeah. Thank you for calling. So, yeah, so you bring a good point up. We do have the summertime colds that you get. So it's not typically the same viruses. It's it's still usually a virus, uh, just like it is in the, in the late fall and wintertime that we see. But a lot of times it's different viruses that we see during this time. So as opposed to adenovirus and rhinovirus that we see a lot in the wintertime, these are more like, and you may have heard of some of these, Coxsackie virus, enterovirus, echovirus. Those are going to be the ones that cause the colds in the summertime. They're pretty much all the same, though. Everybody, A lot of people get runny nose, congestion, uh, red and watery eyes, just like you would for any of the wintertime illnesses. But it's, you know, a little bit different viruses that are causing these. These viruses in particular in the summertime... Again, these are not common complications. However, we can see some more complications with some of these viruses that happen more in the in the summertime. So Coxsackie, enterovirus, echovirus, those can cause meningitis. Uh, we see this a lot um, on the peds side with viral meningitis. I don't see it as much in adult side, but uh, we do see it fairly commonly in the peds side. Um, but they cause what we call an aseptic meningitis. So there's no bacteria that's causing the virus, but you have a virus, uh, I mean the meningitis, but you have a viral infection causing the meningitis. But you'll still have the same symptoms like we talked about earlier with meningitis, headaches, neck stiffness, fever. Um, sometimes you may vomit as well, vision changes. So these can unfortunately be some complications from these viruses. The other thing that we think about is complications for these viruses. And again, it's not common, um, but it does happen. And I feel like most of these complications that I've seen tend to happen in my adult patients. Uh, but we see things like uh, infection, myocard- myocarditis and pericarditis. So that's going to be inflammation around the heart. Um, and so these can cause com- problems. It can make your heart be bigger. It can make you go into heart failure. So again, these are not common complications, but unfortunately they are seen with these viruses that we tend to see more in the summertime that can cause the summer colds. So it's important if, you know, if you're, if you're having some different symptoms, if you have been around kids that have had colds to tell your doctor about that, uh, because like I said, we can have different complications than just the typical summer cold. Good news is, even though it's different viruses that causes the summer colds and the winter colds, we treat them all the same. Um, Just supportive care, just like any virus, it can last 10 to 14 days. So the runny nose, the congestion, the cough, the red watery eyes, it will all get better with time, but you just have to be patient. No need for antibiotics, uh, just supportive care. You can take antihistamines to help with the runny nose and the congestion. You can take um, different uh, cough suppressants to help you with if you develop a cough. Um, 
eye drops are usually not necessary if you get a really bad pink eye with it because, again, it's all viral, and a lot of times it will just get better with supportive care. But it's definitely something to talk to your doctor about because sometimes you can get secondary infections on top of that. Uh, But, yeah, so that was a great question, Lee. Thank you for that. But summertime colds, we see a lot of those. Very similar to the wintertime colds, just a little bit different viruses. And so the most important thing to be on the lookout for is those different complications that you can get from these particular viruses that we see in the summertime. We're talking today about summertime safety and the different illnesses that you can see in the summertime. We would love to hear from you, so give us a call, 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. So Lyme disease, uh, like I said, not here in the southeast, mostly in the northeast New England areas and the upper Midwest. Look for the rash that could occur about seven days after you get bit by the tick. Lyme disease, unfortunately, can have some complications that continue on even after the initial illness if you don't treat them. Um, And so those can be like continued headaches, muscle stiffness. But some of the other things we think about are arthritis. It can actually cause a a pretty bad arthritis. Um, So Lyme arthritis is definitely one. It can cause um, a facial palsy. And so that's kind of like a Bell's palsy you've heard of. Those are usually a different virus that causes that, but it can be associated with Lyme disease. And the other thing that we are concerned about if you do develop Lyme disease and not treat it is it can cause problems with your heart. So it can actually cause heart block. And so that's one thing. It can, it can also cause a myocarditis, just like some of those other viruses we talked about earlier. Um, can cause swelling and get your heart to be enlarged. Um, but the heart block is one of the other things that we think about too. So the most important thing is to be able to recognize if you potentially have any of these illnesses, if you potentially could be developing Lyme disease so that that way you can get treated because it is a bacteria that causes Lyme disease and we so antibiotics do work for this as opposed to West Nile and some of these other viruses that we've talked about antibiotics are important in treating Lyme disease doxycycline is the medication we use for adults Um, we can use you know we don't tend to use doxycycline in kids because it can have side effects in our kids more than we see in adults Um, and so there's options we can use amoxicillin for that we can also use amoxicillin and a couple of other different antibiotics for adults if you are allergic to doxycycline Uh, but it's important to make sure to recognize this so that we can get it treated the other tick-borne illness that we hear about commonly is Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. And now this can occur here in the Southeast. Um, It can actually occur kind of all throughout the U.S., Um, but we see it some in North Carolina, Tennessee, Arkansas, Missouri. Those are the typical states that we think about with uh, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. It is also caused by a bacteria, so that means that we can treat this one. And this uh, illness in particular it's really important that we treat them as soon as we can because you can have lots of complications with Rocky Mountain spotted fever and it can even be fatal I, I saw a story not too long ago um, I can't remember where the child was but recently passed with Rocky Mountain spotted fever so it is very important to make sure that you get treated for that as soon as you can so what would you expect for Rocky Mountain spotted fever because since this is one that we could potentially see down here fever headaches rash, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, um, kind of all the typical symptoms. The rash in Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever is not as, um, we don't, it's not as recognizable as it is for Lyme disease. It can kind of be a variety of things, 
But the rash in Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever usually starts on the wrist. So it usually starts farther away. So it'll start in the wrist or maybe the ankles. And then it tends to move into like your trunk and your back. Uh, So that is one way you can kind of tell if you're getting a developing a rash after a tick bite. So Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, it can be just little bitty pinpoint dots or it could be big red splotches. But it's definitely something to look for starting on the extremities and moving in. Um, it is the treatment for that is super important. So the minute you think you suspect this, get to the doctor so you can get your antibiotics. We're going to continue talking about our summertime illnesses. We've got a few callers. If y'all could hang on the line and we'll get back to you after we take a quick break. Give us a call. one mpb ring That's one 672 This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We've been talking today about the different illnesses that we see in the summertime, both mosquito illnesses, tick-borne illnesses. We would love to hear from you. We've got a few minutes left. Give us a call at one mpb ring That's 1-877-672-7464. So we've got a few callers. Thank you all for holding. We'll go next to Wayne in Holly Springs. Thanks for calling. Thanks for taking my call. I wanted to get more information on that Rocky Mountain spotted fever. I was bitten last year. Um, I took pulled a tick off of me in about a week or less. I started to see a rash on my hand. It was very painful and itched for about three or four days. Went to the doctor, and I was very shocked to find out that I got Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's exactly right. So it you usually get the rash about a week or so, a few days after it can range anywhere, but in sometime in the first week after you get the tick bite or you find the tick. Um, and then soon after that, the fever starts, and that's when you get the more complications. But like you said, the rash was in your hands, so that's usually where we see the rash first for Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. It starts on your out, uh, peripheral part of your extremity, so your wrist and your ankles, and then will spread more diffusely. Some complications. What's, what's, the, long, what's the long-term effects of, of that? So there's not, it's not like Lyme disease where you can have long-term symptoms and effects. If you get treated, most people respond really well to the treatment and don't have any long-term complications. The complications with Rocky Mountain spotted fever happen if you don't get treated for it. So some potential complications, um, you can have problems with your liver. So one of the first things that we can see is uh, your liver enzymes can be increased. You can also have problems with some of your electrolytes, particularly your sodium. Your sodium can get really low. Those are some things that we can see with that. Um, And it it can cause problems. But if you get treated for it, it's not like Lyme disease where you can have some more long-term complications from it. People usually respond really well to the treatment and don't have any long-term complications. And just one dose of antibiotic is enough, or it has to be treated for, for a period of time? Um, I, it's, it's more than one dose. Um, it just depends on it's at least a week, sometimes two weeks, I think, for the doxycycline to be treated. Um, but it's the same treatment. It's the doxycycline that we use for the Lyme disease. And, uh, but, yeah, it depends on, but it's, it should be more than one dose. All right, great. Thank you very much. Enjoy the show. Yeah, thank you for your call. 
Yeah, so uh, the Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever is you don't usually get complications from that as long as you get treated for it. And so that's why I was saying it's so important to recognize uh, that you have that this rash could be related to Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever so that you could get started on treatment with the doxycycline as soon as you can. But most people typically recover really well from it and don't have any problems after that. So we'll go next to Diane. Thanks for calling. Yes, ma'am. Um, I just wanted to highly caution you um, to not to not tell people that Lyme disease does not exist in Mississippi. Um, I personally have, hold on just a second, little one. Um, I personally have um, a few friends who have had Lyme disease who have never ventured outside of Mississippi and one who almost died from it. And so it does exist. It just may not exist prevalently. And I know that this is highly disputed. On the other hand, um, I would also like to hear from you about the Lone Star Tick Mm -hmm. and the alpha-gal allergy, um, the allergy to meat uh, mammals that this tick can can, a bite from this tick can, can cause. And I'll hang up and listen. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for your call. So, yeah, I think some of the that you're referring to is more of the the chronic uh, Lyme disease that we have kind of started to recognize a little bit more now. A lot of those cases, if we actually do uh, the blood work for it, there is no antibodies to the bacteria that causes Lyme disease in particular, but since a lot of the constellation of symptoms are similar to Lyme disease, it kind of it's kind of a misnomer, um, but we call that chronic Lyme disease. Like you said, there is there's a lot of debate about that now, um, and so there's lots of studies and research that are be do, are being done now so that we can have more idea of what how that is related to Lyme disease if it is related to Lyme disease. Um, but according to the CDC and uh, most demog- uh, geo- geographical excuse me studies that own Lyme disease, we don't have uh, typically do not have Lyme disease uh, in the epidemic endemic, I'm sorry, endemic in the southeast. So if you look on the CDC's website, they do not have any reported cases here. But the chronic Lyme disease is definitely something that uh, we see a lot, unfortunately, and it causes a lot of chronic illnesses similar to Lyme disease. But again, a lot of those patients don't actually have the antibodies to the bacteria for that. With regards to the Lone Star Tick, that's a good question um, because it causes a similar rash to what we see for Lyme disease. Starry is the term that we use for that. Southern tick-associated rash illness is the fancy word for it, but starry is what we call it. But it also causes a bullseye illness, uh, a bullseye rash around that. Um, it does not typically cause the um, complications that Lyme disease does, but it does have the... Um, the rash that is similar to the Lyme disease. With regards to the alpha-gal, I don't know a ton about that. I will, um, I have definitely heard that happening, um, and I just don't know enough information about that. I will be happy to talk to, if you can send us an email to kids at mpbonline.org, I'll be happy to talk to some of our allergy friends about that. Uh, Dr. LeBlanc, I know he has talked about this before. Um, but there is some cross-reactivity. I have heard of this happening, um, and I would love to get some more information about that. I'm sorry, I don't know, and I would hate to give wrong information out for you about this, but I have heard of that reaction. And if you can shoot us an email, I will be happy to get some more information um, from Dr. LeBlanc and try to pass that information on to you. I have seen some um, 
some stuff about that. And the alpha-gal is an allergy that we know can be associated to red meats that people have. And so um, I will look into that for you. Thank you, everyone, for calling today. We've had some great calls, and I appreciate that. One quick thing that we have not gotten to that I wanted to touch base on would be uh, snake bites because that tends to happen a lot in the summertime. And not all snakes are going to be poisonous. Um, There are about 120 different snakes that we have down here in the south, but only about 20 are actually poisonous. Um, So uh, not all snake bites are going to be poisonous. A few things to do if you have somebody that is bitten by a snake, because this is important, because there's a lot of wives tales out there about what you do. Um, Number one, do not try to suck the venom out and spit it out, because that is not okay. You can actually have damage um, if you are exposed to that venom. And so do not do that. Do not put a tourniquet on it either. So a lot of a lot of times that's what we hear growing up. If somebody gets bit by a snake, put a tourniquet. The most important thing to do if you, so you have somebody that gets bit by a snake is to keep that extremity still. So if you need to, if it's a kid that's going to have a hard time keeping it still, put a, make a makeshift splint so that you can keep that extremity still. Um, a lot of people say keep it lower so that below the heart so that it doesn't spread to the body. But the biggest part is keeping it still and getting to the ER so that you can get checked out. If you can take a picture of the snake safely so that we can know what kind it was, that would be great. But only if it's safe can you go over there to try to identify the snake. Thank you, everyone, for your calls today. We've had some wonderful calls about summertime illnesses that we see, um, and I appreciate everyone's calls. This has been Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I am Dr. Morgan McLeod, and our producer was Jay White. Thanks for listening. Join us next Thursday at 11 for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, and stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now, coming up next on MPB Think Radio.